People are not so sure that the advance of the truth that we have discovered is all that helpful. And that the technology that has come is all that useful, although it speeds up our lives, does it improve it? And this is not just an older generation asking these questions. In fact, these questions are most being asked by our young people. And so there's this deep skepticism about making any kind of truth claim. Because truth, to make a truth claim, has, has ended up being married in their minds to some kind of quest for power to control them. You're just telling me that so that you can run my life. If you own the facts, then you own my future. And so facts have become personalized because people want the right to decide what their future will be. Truth itself is suspect. I'm telling you about our culture, not telling you what I believe. (laughs) And so we have all, in some measure, become deeply conditioned, dare I say even programmed, to resist the controls that others would put on us. And so we're very careful with truth claims. Now, the logic is self-defeating. I mean, anyone in philosophy will tell you that to say all truth claims are suspect is a truth claim, which means that that claim is suspect, which means you can't use it. Now, that might be rationally true, but hey, we already distrust reason. So, you, you know, it's a kind of, it is self-defeating. But simply showing people that the logic is flawed is not dealing with the emotional resistance that they still feel inside. Which means that merely shouting our truth, that, you know, we might believe it is the truth, but in the world's mind, as we set out on mission, they're just thinking, well, that's your opinion, baby. You know, I'm glad it blows your hair back if you've got any hair to blow. But, you know, good for you. But simply shouting our truth louder means that we navigate our way into a cultural cul-de-sac and the gospel itself gets ignored. But there is a path forward, and our passage points directly towards it, and it speaks to this emerging culture. You see, our culture is weary of truth claim, tired of fake news, tired of your facts. But it is willing to take seriously something that can be demonstrated to actually work. It's become quite pragmatic. So if something is clear and successful, if it's a working model, if you can show us real-life examples of how this actually works and happens, if there are honest, relatable stories from real life that you can put on the table, and if you've got some eyewitnesses that can help us understand, well, then we'll give you a listen. Don't give us high theory. Show me your puppies. Let me see this thing work, is what people are really asking of us. And so our society, if we talk about a gospel of love, is saying to us, show me a community of love. 
Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. He understands the need in the postmodern heart, their heart cry, to actually see this in action. So this is why this is such a vital part. Our community literally feeds our mission. The love that we have for one another. People will know that we belong to and follow Jesus when our love becomes the working model of a world that they would love to be part of. Which means at least this. The impact of our ministry and mission depends upon the integrity, the depth, the vulnerability of our relationships with one another. Notice Jesus didn't say, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love them. They're not even expecting that. They're hoping for that. But they're simply asking this question, can you love one another? (laughs) We know we're on the outside. Can you even do it for one another? You see, this genuine love for one another, not just for the lost, it will include the lost. And nobody who follows Jesus can fail to remember that he came to seek and to save those who were lost. Will include the lost. But it is actually the love that we have for one another. Deep, vulnerable, brave, sacrificial love as I have loved you that becomes the most likely reason in our day that someone will choose to follow Jesus. Does that make sense? Becomes the most likely reason. You may not win the argument. Give them a book. I can't tell you how many people in my generation came to faith through reading a book or listening to a sermon or whatever. Guys, we need to give them a demonstration that they can actually see. So point number one, our place in history, the last 30, 40 years, we're unearthing the most likely reason why someone will choose to follow Jesus. The second is our response to the COVID pandemic. Let's narrow this down a bit. The last two years have been some of the toughest times that people have had to face in their whole lifetimes. Now, that may not be true for all of you, but I certainly want to say it's true for a lot. It's true for a lot. And as a pastor, helping people deal with the financial crisis, the grief, the marriage pressures, the family disintegration, it's been tough. It's been unbelievably demanding. I understand. And this week I was in a meeting with several pastors, all of whom lead, you know, healthy churches. And they were describing with significant trepidation the enormous amount of rebuilding that lies ahead for each one of them. Because the impacts have been real and significant and huge. And yet, our place in the pandemic. Last weekend, about 150 people, mainly from Explore, but we also had Evening, and we had Sophia and Clara with us. It was really great. Um, and we headed off on a church camp. And because so much of camp is spent together, I mean, the children even shared dormitories 
but we were having meals together, playing games together, we were swimming together, we were exercising together, that it made no sense that when it came time to do some of our group activities or church together, that we suddenly all put on our masks. So it was a mask-free weekend. It was amazing. <laughs> More, Lord. <laughs> and as we just lived back into community, the one thing we had to say is, listen, we're out of practice. We're out of practice. We are so out of practice. So what we just said is we chose two words. We just said, lean in. We've all been pulling back. We've all been socially distant. Lean in. It was incredible. One young mom. I think one of her children was born right at the beginning of the pandemic. Had to raise a newborn by herself. Said this. Camp was like I had been plunged into a mighty river. In community, connecting to one another, all the staleness, all the dryness, all the disconnection of the last two years seemingly washed away. It was like she was able to live again. See what community can do? Maybe another example will help. I was thinking this week, not because I was preaching at Classic, I was actually sharing this with those pastors I met with. You know, we, we look for defining events and how they impact a generation. And one startling example is World War II. On Friday, I met with a couple who described how ration cards remained in place in the United Kingdom until 1957. 12 years of after effects, six years of war, 12 years of after effects. And they are very definitely part of the waste, not, want, not generation. When you've lived on rations for 18 years, you don't mess with any asset that you have. And anyone relate to that old saying, when last did you hear it? Waste, not, want, not. It was schooled into you, it's drilled into you, it's formed your whole life. Cindy's mom, uh, who's with the Lord now, I mean, she lived some tough years during those times in the remote areas of the Eastern Cape, and Cindy was amazed that there was not a Tupperware dish, not even an ice cream dish or a margarine bucky that ever made it to the tipper. It always went into the pantry because waste not, want not. A generation defined. But there was something even more significant. That was a little bit of humor, but it was a generation that had seen more destruction, more pain, more loss than many generations, well, all generations since. And so they were known for what had been broken, destroyed, 
They had seen it, they had experienced it, and some had even inflicted it. They had launched the bombs. And out of that experience, they were deeply changed into a generation that, be that became known for what they built. Generational theory describes them as the civic generation, or quite simply, in popular language, generational theory sometimes just calls them the builders. We still drive their roads, fly from their airports, and sail from their harbors. They built stuff. See, major events shape generations, even if they've been negative. As we look today, the last two years have changed us and our society. People have experienced the loss of the destruction of their connectedness and their community and their sense of being able to be together with others. And if I saw anything over these last few weeks and months and at church camp last week, people are saying, I want it back. Enough destruction, enough loneliness, enough isolation. I want this back. And that's not just people from church. People are wanting. People out there who are not yet coming to church, who don't yet know Jesus, are just as lonely, except they don't know where to go. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. This season has opened up a harvest for us. And if we will invite people into the depth of love and community that Jesus models and offers and commands, people will fight for you. <laughs> people will stampede those doors. Which may give you a problem, but I've already decided I am not turning anyone away anymore. People come. They are welcome. I'm not turning people away. We'll find the space. If people come, they are welcome. It's been good for them to come. Which leads me to our mission, third point of application as a church. Whether classic or explore in evening, we all exist to see the mature and full life of Jesus reproduced in his followers. Now when we say reproducing the life of Jesus, we're very clear that we can't atone for the sins of the world. Jesus in his humanity is exclusively Messiah and Savior and Lord. But between his two burials, his first burial in water, in baptism, identifying with us, and his second burial after that atonement, pretty much everything Jesus did, including dying for the love of others, is in our instruction and mission manual. There are theologies that think, no, that was an interim ethic. We disagree. Jesus is the pioneer. He is the model. And so, in a startling picture from Scripture, we are here as if Jesus were here. 
We are his body. <laughs> and then in another picture, we are here because Jesus is here. We are his temple. <laughs> and so in our mission, in our ministry, in our spirituality, in our community and in our love, if we want to see the love of Jesus, then we must release the heart and the spirit of Jesus. You see, recent days have seen the spiritual forces of fear and control and discouragement and isolation and alienation seemingly running rampant, defining the prevailing culture. And people feel trapped and wonder, is there a way out of this anger? A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. We have a new commandment from our king. This commandment comes to those who have been set free from the spirit of the age. You see, as much as I've been speaking about the age to which we are called to do mission, we are precisely effective when we are not defined by the age to which we are called to do mission. James chapter 2 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as faultless as this, to care for the widow and the orphan in their distress, and to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. We don't want the spirit of the age. We don't want anger and fear and control and discouragement and isolation and alienation. We want this love, which Galatians 5.22 says is the supreme fruit of the Spirit. And that verse, by the way, there's only one fruit of the Spirit. And if I could play with your punctuation, your mental punctuation. Sam, I liked what you said about the Lord's Prayer. It's very true, but I won't be tempted to even go even further on that. But the punchline of the Lord's Prayer, by the way, is give us today our daily bread. God has a vision of a kingdom on the earth in which not a single person made in his image goes to bed hungry. Wow. How would that reinvent the world? Back to my point. Galatians chapter 5. Now the fruit of the Spirit is love. And it looks like peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. In other words, love is like the pure white light that passes through the prism of an individual. And as that light passes through, it opens up into a spectrum of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and people begin to experience what they need in that moment from his love through your life and mine. You see, when our mission is like that of Jesus, bringing healing, receiving the lost, doing justice, speaking life and truth, setting people free from the lies that feed off darkness, when our mission and spirit is like that of Jesus, guess what? Our community starts to look like Jesus. See how they're interdependent. You don't try and get a Jesus community without doing Jesus stuff. Get stuck in and do his mission 
And the natural result will be a Jesus community. I think this is what's opening up before us right now. How many of us remember the 2017-2018 water restrictions and the drought in the Western Cape? Anyone remember that? Anyone still got stains on the bottom of your loo because of the junk water that you threw down there? I just can't get it to move. The stains, that is. Um, And all the talk of day zero and everything like that. Do you know that in recent years, since then, Western Cape agriculture has had some of its greatest harvests since that drought. Part of the reason is apparently this. During the dry seasons, during the dry years, the plants have to put down their roots deeper or they will die. They can't rely on what is superficial. They have to go down deep. And while the harvest was small during those dry years, the trees, many of them, became stronger because their root systems gained more depth and greater reach. And when the rain returned, what happened? Crazy, crazy harvests. We have been in a drought of love and community and connection. And we have had to put our roots much, much deeper into our faith and into Jesus. But I am absolutely convinced that we are going into a couple of years where if this analogy is remotely transferable, PBC, we can see amazing things happen in all our congregations. When the rains return, I'm convinced that critical doors of opportunity are now about to swing wide open. Partly because of our place in history. Partly because of an opportunity to respond to the pandemic. And partly because of what God has been doing inside us during this time. But What we need to see is our mission and our love converge. When they work together, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the simplicity and power of your words. This morning we want to take them to heart. Father, we ask that the world around us, which may have heard our message 
may now taste our fruit. Maybe you want to take a moment and just talk to the Lord about what this means for you as opportunity as invitation and as a crystal clear command. Lord, save us from thinking that the world needs to change so that the gospel can bear fruit. Help us to realize that the first place you're looking for change is in us. May your love be so radiantly evident. Let the pure white light of your love burst into a spectrum of glorious good things that our world so needs. In Jesus' name, amen.